0: Everybody in this room has intelligence. I take that by faith. Uh, turn to the person next to you and say you're super intelligent. Yeah, you're doing it, I can see that. Lie if you have to. <laughs> you know, when you think about you can think through an issue. Somebody shares a point and you kind of think through that. You have a rational mind, you, you think through things and you process Information and we know sequentially uh, one moment at a time. We don't know the beginning and the end. God does, we don't. And yet every single one of us has a tendency to lean on our emotions for processing information. And here's something you need to understand about your emotions your emotions have no intelligence. Your emotions are not smart. Your emotions don't process information. What your emotions do is react to information. You say no, I I think I... Every time you lean on your emotions you begin to react. When you think with your intellect you have reason and you have ability to process what's going on around you. How many of you are married? Raise your hand if you're married or have been married. Okay, a lot of people here. Uh, You know this, that you can be, men, I'll speak to you for a minute. minute, Ladies, don't listen to this. Uh, We know, guys, we've gotten in an argument and about halfway through the argument we realize she's right. But we don't want to give in. That has nothing to do with the message, I just wanted to tell you that. No, it's really true, we, because our emotions won't let go of what we're hanging on to, because our emotions are reactionary. And if you don't believe me, remember this, when you were a little kid, and you were afraid, anybody afraid at night? Anybody? Uh, you don't want to admit it, you were afraid. And we, I don't know about you, but I, nobody told me this, I just knew there were monsters underneath my bed. And here's the thing. My emotions would get a hold of that and I couldn't process it. I didn't think through it. If I thought through it, I would have thought differently. But my emotions said, you know, if my leg falls on over to the side of the bed, the monster can get it. I have to keep everything up and tight, right? Anybody relate to that? Yeah, some of you are honest. The rest of you are Missing a limb. I mean, I, I was so committed to that emotionally that I would take and tuck my, my blankets around me and just, you know, kind of like this, hoping I would not lose an arm in the middle of the night. That's our emotions. Think about, you know, if you turn the light on, this is what your emotion said, if you have the light on, the monster can't get you. That's a pretty weak monster. Think about that. This ferocious monster, if you turn the light on, can't get you. That's pretty dumb. That's our emotions. Why do we lean on our emotions all the time for trying to process information and situations around us? I've been a... emotionally in my life from time to time. I've struggled with a kind of a low grade anxiety every once in a while, a popping up with intense anxiety. And God has given me significant change in my life. And I'm beginning to see more and more change with that. But, you know, I, I came to realize that you can be selfish without being a narcissist. Not everybody that's selfish Is a narcissist you can be sad without being depressed you can be uh, uh, organized without being compulsive you can be in a mood swing without being bipolar and what we do is we have a tendency to label people with these kinds of things when in fact they're just going through life normally and when we label people we begin to create an environment for them where they're stuck if they believe in those lies you see on the screen the law of inevitability and the law of inevitability works something like this uh, you, the best you can hope for in this life is to modify your behavior so if you're going through a difficult time and maybe you have some um, Habitual behavior you have a habit in your life. The best thing you can do is uh, you know just modify that and for example, if you have struggled with alcohol and i don 't know at what point alcohol becomes uh, you know you you 're drinking normally or you know what i don 't know what your views are on that, but you know you having a, a a drink every once in a while and then you know, starts becoming, you know, on the weekends and then, you know, it starts becoming every day and, 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 you know, at some point, you know, we conclude about ourselves if we have this struggle that we're an alcoholic. So we go get some help. The problem with that is that when we conclude that we're an alcoholic and we use that as our label, then now we have to find meaning in that new identity. Let me tell you how uh, powerful our identity is. If you identify yourself as an alcoholic, the only way you can find meaning is to drink alcohol. And so you have to go against your very identity in order to be free from alcohol. It's true with anything. If you identify yourself as a father you have to have children. If you identify as a mother, you have to have uh, children. If you identify uh, as a husband, you need to have a wife. Here's the problem. What if you identify yourself as a sexual male? Then you can find meaning in multiple partners, even outside your marriage. You see, I don't identify as a sexual male. I identify as a husband. So the only way I find meaning is to limit my sexual activity with my wife. You see how that works? Meaning follows identity. However you identify yourself, that's how you will find meaning. So it's important that you understand who you are and understand who God calls you. You are called a saint, a child of God. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you should never say, I am an alcoholic. This is what you should say. I am a child of God, I'm a saint, and I'm struggling with alcohol. Don't wrap your identity. Why would you wrap your identity around your greatest failure? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are His. Let Him tell you who you are. So the law of inevitability says, I can change, I can modify. You struggle with anger, we go to anger management but there's something that's driving that anger and if you can get to the core that's driving that anger sometimes therapy helps sometimes a good pastoral counselor helps sometimes it's just a good friend who will listen and i can tell you if you are angry something is driving that anger and that anger is driven by a fear that you have so if you can uncover the fear you will be able to control that but The Bible doesn't say that you you just modify your behavior. The Bible says that, in fact, you can be transformed. You can be a new creature in Christ Jesus. You can function within the sphere of this new creation that you are in Christ Jesus. Let me show you how it works. Look at this chart. Uh, This chart, so oftentimes we try to fix our lives so there's a behavior, an act. You see the last arrow there there's an act that we realize it's not only hurting our lives but the lives around of people around us and so those behaviors we want to change them you know nobody wants to be negative in other people's lives especially if you are a follower of jesus we want to be We want to be responsible and loving and kind and so forth. And and yet some of our behaviors are hard for people to take in our lives. So we want to change that behavior. The problem is if you work with behavior, the only thing that you can do is modify that behavior. And you're constantly struggling. But what if you were to get in behind that behavior and you see the next arrow uh, before the act is what you feel your emotions so if you could control your emotions then you would be able to control your behavior but it's hard to modify your emotions too aren't they because your emotions like you're you're like I don't know I just get mad I don't know why I get mad but if we could get behind the emotions into our thinking if we could change the way we think then it would drive what we feel and what we feel would drive what we do So in comes a therapist, and we go to a therapist to help us try to th- rethink, and it's really valuable. My, my feeling is the best therapists are what are called cognitive therapists. They help you uh, with your understanding and, and truth and understanding that truth. Uh, and, and, and what it does is it helps us to rethink our life but the problem is that's not the first source if we look at scripture it has to be preceded by faith you see if you just believe things or if you just think things without having a transformation of your belief it's not going to be a permanent change what you believe drives what you think and what you think drives what you feel and what you feel drives what you do let's make up a guy a guy named Stan Stan truly believes his wife is cheating on him now I made up this story so she's not but he thinks so in fact he really thinks that she is cheating on him so he becomes self-protective and he withdraws or he attacks. He attacks her or withdraws from her, becomes sullen and Stan's wife is, is, is uh, wondering what's going on. But because this is only in Stan's mind, it's not true. Have you ever heard somebody say, this is my truth? You know, share your truth. Well, if your truth is not real, that's a waste of time. Your truth has to align with reality. So your truth may not be true. So what we believe drives what we think, and what we think drives what we feel, and what we feel drives what we do. You ever been so afraid that you just are gripped with fear? You ever had anxiety? You know what anxiety is? That, that sense that, and you can't even really put your hand on it, but there's something that is telling you life is wrong and, and something's uh, threatening you. And that, that anxiety begins to grip your soul. You begin to imagine things. You begin, you feel crippled by these fears. I fly from time to time and when I do, I I notice some people are nervous, maybe anxious about flying. Fear of flying is really, it's real. I've never had that fear, I was excited about it. I've been afraid of crashing, but I've never been afraid of flying. I guess every, that's the point, right? So a man with intense fear of flying, never flown in his life, but he finds out his mother is ill and she lives on the other side of the country. So he says, i, I got to get there, I've got to get there right away. And so he books a flight and he, he's so afraid he... he He books the flight and the day of the flight has come. The next day he gets onto that uh, plane and he's sitting there and, you know, he figured out the best place to sit if the plane crashed. Uh, I, I don't think there's a best, anyway, whatever, moving on. So he gets, he's in the plane and he's sitting down and he's sitting there relaxed, you know, and, and trying to, trying to deal with that fear. He looks over. To his right and there's a guy reading a magazine and he looks over and there's a mother with a child and they're laughing and having a good time and he, he just realized he's sweating he's so afraid the fear I don't know if you've ever felt this kind of anxiety but the fear is just gripping him and then all of a sudden he hears the motors start those engines start on that plane and he just like, wow, this is, he, he takes a deep breath and it's overwhelming to him and he didn't know what to do with it. And, and then it just kind of jerks away from where they were at that spot and pulls onto the, off the tarmac, onto the runway and it's sitting there on the runway and waiting for its turn. And, and it just pulls up and it just kind of jerks forward and he's just gripping onto the, the, the seat And he's just holding on as tight as he can. He's looking around, and people are just relaxed. The guy's still reading his magazine. The woman is still happy with the child. And he's gripping onto the seat, and he's just, if he gripped it any harder, it'd break. And then the plane just starts going down the runway super fast, and and when it gets up uh, at the end of the f- runway there's this huge bump, you ever that, that bump drives you crazy doesn't it? boom, what a hit, What? what's going on and then it takes off and you're back against your seat and he's looking around the guy's still reading his magazine the woman's over here, just relax with the child and he's out of control and they're getting higher and higher the the uh, Pilot comes over the intercom and he said, folks, we've got a little bit of a problem. You never want to hear that. We just want to hear, I want a Coke and nuts. I don't care. Just give me the little penis. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's good. This guy's going crazy because there's a problem. What do you mean there's a problem? We can't have problems. And then he looks out of the window and one of the engines blows up and blows fire outside of the engine and he's looking around, he looks the guy next to him, he's still reading the magazine, he can't believe it. These people are crazy. And then the plane begins to divert to the right and it just begins to shoot towards the ground. And then just before it lands, or crashes, it doesn't land, crashes to the ground. He snaps out of it and he looks to his right, the guy's reading his magazine, the woman's sitting there talking to his child and he realized that was all in his head none of that happened they're still at the gate waiting for the plane to be cleared to take off your emotions have no intelligence that's all i wanted to share with you today tell you a story about a girl named Linda she was a young girl about 8 uh, 13 years old she came to realize a devastating truth that year and that truth was her truth which was people admire youth and beauty she had been re- relatively happy as a little girl and To put it in her words, to quote her, she said, I was a happy child who was, quote, fat and happy. She was bubbly. And most people loved her and liked being around her. She did feel somewhat invisible. She was told by her mother uh, repeatedly when she would get dressed in her fancy clothes. Linda, quote, fat little girls don't wear clothes like that. That's what her mother said to her. That summer of her 13th year, she hit puberty and something unexpected happened to her her body. She lost weight, she got taller, She thinned out and her cheeks had changed showing the bone structure of her face. And for the first time in her life, people noticed how beautiful she was. She went to uh, school that fall That summer she had lost all that weight. She went to school that next year and for the first time ever, boys gave her attention. So did girls, girls were, she became more popular. And for the first time in her life, the most devastating thing was her mother gave her approval She learned her truth, her truth, not the truth, her tragic truth. Life is best for girls that are young and pretty. That became her value. That became her identity. It became her belief system and even though she knew Jesus as her savior and she loved the Lord Jesus, she struggled with this new reality Slowly over the years, this belief would begin to tear at her heart and begin to destroy her. I met Linda in college in 1971. She was bubbly and friendly, beautiful. She seemed warm and approachable. She was a cheerleader and she was popular. And we began dating. Unknown to me, Linda had developed a method of staying thin and, in her words, beautiful. She began a process of binging and purging food, which later on was diagnosed as uh, bulimia nervosa. In 1971, that wasn't even a, a diagnosis, it wasn't until the late 70s. Linda was alone in this behavior, it was a private behavior that she kept from other people, and she felt a tremendous amount of shame about it. She had moralized that behavior and didn't see it as a psychological issue. She saw it as a spiritual one, another tragic miscalculation. She unsuccessfully tried to hide this behavior from me. Neither one of us understood how this would control her life And would control our life together. I had no idea how to reach Linda's heart. She lived in a dark world of shame and isolation. Every time I tried to reach into her secret space of shame and guilt, the darkness of her pain seemed too much. Linda was kind to me but she was terribly unkind to herself. years into our marriage I realized I was completely in over my head to reach her heart and we became victims of a false belief system both of us had our own false belief system she believed the lie that youth and beauty were the means of life and happiness and I believed that if we could hide any flaws in our marriage people would accept us these flaw beliefs would be our downfall after 28 years together my counselor recommended fighting for our marriage and he said what you need to do is develop a short list of non-negotiables because your marriage is a sham with my counselors help I wrote out several and we brought these down to just five non-negotiables things that he said have to be they have to be clear they have to be fair they have to be doable and so I presented those to her and then asked her if she would give me a set of non-negotiables things I needed to change to make our marriage work sadly that year Linda decided that she would not work on it. You see, I had waited too long to fight for our marriage. Fighting for our marriage was me being silent and ignoring the obvious. And after 28 years, Linda filed for divorce and there it was, we were over. We were both wrecked and broken. She began dating this young man who was many years younger than her. And for whatever reason, he decided he would tell her that he could no longer date her because she, quote, was too old for him. That triggered against her belief system. You see, her identity was in her youth and beauty. And here she was, a 50-year-old, with a young man in her 20s, in his 20s, rejecting her because of her age. Her belief was, I am only loved when I am young and beautiful. Anybody here heard of the 2190 rule? Somewhat of an obscure rule. The 2190 rule works something like this. It takes 21 days to develop a new habit. That's been modified since this was originally uh, presented, but it takes now we we say 30 to 45 days to develop a new habit. If you do it every day, uh, that new habit will take over in your life and you'll have a new habit, but it takes 90 days to change your lifestyle. So if you want a lifestyle change, it is beyond just an individual habit, You're going to have to take 90 days, that's 13 weeks, to change that. So let's say this guy named uh, Dr. Uh, Maxwell Maltz wrote a book called uh, Psycho-Cybernetics in the 1960s. And this book, whether you've read it or not, I don't recommend it. Uh, It's a good book, a little outdated on its ideas, but he presented this idea of a 2190. And, you know, people need to change, you want to change something in your life, but do you really want to change your lifestyle? I think you do. And so he said, you got to take that daily, do that new habit. And as time goes on, that habit will change. So let's say you want to do something like, uh, let's say you want to floss. Because, I mean, let's be honest. You probably need to start flossing now i'm sure that this godly group of people floss because it is a spiritual and a moral issue i'm just saying uh you don't know me i'm joking all right so let's say you start out and you start flossing every day and you miss a couple of days no big deal but then you floss some more and then at at a period of time over 21 days, Dr. Maltz would say, I'd say it's about 30 to 45 days. You do that over, guess what? You'll you'll start flossing the rest of your life and your life will be great. Flossing is mandatory. All right. You can change those kinds of habits. But if you wanna change the direction of your life, Your relationships, your sense of well-being, your connection to God, intimacy with others, friendships, work ethic, those kinds of things. If you want to change that, it's going to take 13 weeks. So you've been working, some of you, a long time developing anxiety. I wrote a book called Breathe, Overcoming Anxiety, Depression, and Negative Emotions. And it's 13 chapters. And the reason it's 13 chapters is because I believe it takes 90 days or 13 weeks to change the direction of your life. And this book, I wrote it to be read one chapter a week for 13 weeks. And I believe that if you're struggling with anxiety or depression or negative emotions or overruling in your life, This book may be really helpful to you. I use biblical principles as well as good healthy psychology to deal with the problems of anxiety, depression and negative emotions. All of this time in our lives, I was in my 50s when I realized how desperately I needed to change my emotions. And I was at loss of how to do it. And my wife, Kimberly, said, Tim, what you need to do you're a researcher. Research this. Find out what God has to say about it. And she sent me to the Word of God. And I began to realize I knew these principles. I had just never applied them in relationship. And these principles became a, a source for me. And, and I, I want to encourage you, if you're struggling with that, or you know someone who is, to get that book. We'll have them available after the service. In Psalm 73, there's a guy named Asaph who wrote that psalm. He wrote, I think, 8 to 10 psalms. uh, And Asaph was a worship leader. By the way, the band was awesome today. And I I came in and I'm sure they're awesome every Sunday. But, you know, uh, you know, you tell somebody, hey, you look great today. Well, what about yesterday? No, not so much. Today, great. Anyway, so they sounded great today and I I just came in and I go, you know, I was thinking I'm gonna be talking about a worship leader. This guy wrote music, Asaph did. He wrote music, uh, he played music, and he was one of David's key guys. One of David's two key worship leaders. Three, excuse me. And Asaph could not understand why God did what he did and didn't judge people like he did he wanted God to judge people for their bad behavior and he had no idea why God didn't do that and I want to talk about ASAP's journey into emotional failure Uh, if you see on the screen Psalm uh, 73 Psalm 73 verse 1 truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart but as for me My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You know, when you enter into judging God, you put yourself in a very difficult place. But that's what Asaph had done. Three things I see in this. First, he was jealous. He had a jealous heart. And a comparison with others is a great way to damage your mental health. You want to ruin something good? Compare it to something else. You got something really good compared, you know, do you remember when you bought that car, that car you wanted so badly, you bought that car, how many have bought a brand new car? Well, maybe it wasn't brand new, but it was like, you know, it had 50,000 miles, but it was new to you. And you were so happy to get it. All of you are smiling. I know, you know what I'm talking about. You got that car. In fact, it's so good. You buy it, you drive it home, you park it in the car, and you, you turn around and look at it and go, yeah. <laughs> yeah, baby. And then you go back in, you go into the house, and you're sitting there and you go, Wait a minute. You go back out and you go, yes, you're mine. You know what I'm talking about? One last look. Bam. All right. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. And then you drive up to uh, some nice restaurant. And you drive that car up and you park it right up front because you love that car. It may not be the greatest car, you got it with the leather seats, it was used, you taped some of the seats back together, but you liked it. And then, some jerk with a Porsche parts right next to you. And you're like, wait a minute. You say, well, I have a Porsche. Okay, a Bentley parks next to you. Now, you're going, you're not looking at your car like bam, you're going, looking at your car like crap. You want to ruin something good? Compare it to someone else. People do that in marriage. Oh, you're going to talk about marriage next week. All right. The second thing is a critical spirit. He had a critical spirit. Judgment of others removes your heart from intimacy with God. God hasn't called us to judge other people. And and your critical spirit is killing your heart. And the third one is a sanctimonious attitude. The false notion that you are morally superior to others. And, And even morally superior to God. You know Job in the Old Testament. Job said this. He said... Uh, You know, God, I don't understand why you judge me like this. In fact, there's something wrong with you, God. You think Job was right in what he said? God said to Job, let me talk to you, fault finder. Will you make yourself righteous and me evil? God said that to Job. Because Job thought if I were God, I would never harm somebody like me. I would never allow people to go through what I'm going through. There's something dangerous about a sanctimonious attitude. So we have three options. Let me give you these real quickly. Three options for emotional health. Option number one, behavior modification. I talked briefly about that. If I could change my behavior, I would be emotionally healthy. This is what it says in Psalm 73, 13. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence Kept my heart clean. But it was worthless. It was in vain. Because I fixed my life and I look at other people, I'm walking with God, but other people seem to be doing better than me. And I'm the one that's surrendering to Jesus. God hasn't called us to that. I keep my heart clean and wash my hands in innocence. We change our behavior, we modify our behavior, but it's futility. You know, when you wash your hands, say, wash your hands. See, that's a Hebrew idiom, meaning to clean up your behavior. Doesn't mean to wash your hands. If you have kids, you know, you ever get your kids, it's time for dinner, you know, you say, go wash your hands. I don't know what it is about kids, but they don't like to wash their hands. And they go in and they come back out and you go, did you wash your hands? Yep. And then moms will go, let me smell them. Even the thing, you know, you go, you get them wet because you know they're going to look at them. You got them still a little bit wet and you go, yeah, I washed my hands, still wet. Let me smell them. Go wash them with soap this time. When we wash our hands, we've cleaned up our behavior. I've stopped doing the things that I was doing that were not honoring to God, but it was in vain. ASAP had the second option was situation modification. If I could change my situation or my circumstances, I would be emotionally healthy. You know what happens in divorce? Uh, setting aside where there's abuse or, you know, toxicity or something, but just a normal relationship where you kind of fall out of love. Well, fall back in love. That takes work. Do it on a regular basis. Date each other. Fall in love again. But what happens is we say, you know, I would be better off, I would be more emotionally healthy if I was out of this relationship. I'm going to change my circumstance. Psalm 73, verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. So I'm going to go into church. You came to church today. If I go to church, that'll change all my emotional problems. No, it won't. You cannot go to church and then go unchanged and think there's going to be a new life. You've got to listen to truth and you've got to apply truth in order to really be transformed. It is futile to try to change your situation and think you're going to be emotionally healthy. You know how I know that? Because there's an old saying, where you go, there you are. You can't get away from you. You are you. And whatever is causing you to be emotionally unhealthy is going to cause you to be emotionally unhealthy even if you change your situation. Yeah, I'll go to church. I'll go to the sanctuary. That'll be it. Everything will be fine. I'll get a divorce. Everything will be okay. Psalm 73, 21, When my soul was embittered and I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant I was like a beast before you. Wow. Embittered, provoked, burning anger and ignorance, aggression toward God. A woman came to me who had tried this situation modification, tried to change her circumstances and did it over and over again. She came to me and she said, I'm having marital problems. I said, tell me about What's going on? And she shared it with me and she was there for some counseling and she said, I, I just don't think he's going to change. And I said, tell me about your background. And she started telling me about her background and she started to share that when she was a child, she'd gone through some difficult things and so forth. And she got married young and, and she got married again. And actually, this was her seventh marriage. So you've tried this situation modification before. And I asked her, I said, let me ask you a question. What do?" She referred to all of her husbands as losers. I said, what do all those losers have in common? And she started telling me what they had in common. I said, well, I don't think you're exactly right. What all seven have in common is, I'm not saying I'm a great counselor, I just truth teller what they all seven of those guys have in common is they were married to you (laughs) that's that's why I got fired from that church (laughs) you know because where you go there you are he went to the sanctuary it didn't help He was embittered. He was pricked in his heart. He was brutish and ignorant. And he was like a beast. Notice what it says at the bottom of that screen. Toward you. He's talking to God. Do you know what this means? What he's saying? You know, the word beast. Behemoth which m- most Bible translators say is a hippopotamus. You know, I was in uh, Masai Mara, which is right by the Serengeti and in Africa, and I was there for a safari, and we had done this mission trip, and we got this opportunity to go on a safari, and they go, do you want to go? And I go, uh, yeah, okay. And we're on this truck going around and we see these hippopotamus hippopotami whatever a lot of them more than one hippopotamus multiples and have you ever it's like god did you design that was were you out of time those are the goofiest looking they got the goofy ears weird looking face and an odd body they're just like and little short legs. Like, what is going on? But they're really strong. And the guy, I said, You know, they're, they're kind of, they're so, you ever seen somebody that's so ugly, they're cute? Uh, an animal that's so ugly, it's cute? That, that's what the, I go, they're cute. He goes, Let me tell you something. These, the hippopotamus is the most aggressive land animal. I go, Really? Like, I wanna hug. That's the word behemoth. That's the word beast. You see it? I was like a hippopotamus before you. I was aggressive toward God. I blamed you. This is the worship leader. This is the guy that is leading us into intimacy with God and he is struggling with that because you can't change your circumstance and think that your life will change and then asaph's final option was faith modification if i could change my beliefs through transformed thinking i would be emotionally healthy that's the only way to change look at verse 23 of psalm 73 nevertheless i'm continually with you wow that's the place that you need to be you hold my right hand that's the hand of power you guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will receive me to glory whom have I in heaven but you this is Asaph talking to God who he was so angry at he said who have I in heaven but you and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you my flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever Asaph found the key to emotional transformation. The key to emotional transformation. God is protecting and guiding me. When you begin to realize that God is causing you to matriculate through life, that you are going through life, being guided by God, those problems that are in your way, they're meant to drive you to God. Those successes are meant for you to give glory to God, not yourself. Those beautiful, intimate moments with someone that God has gifted you with is meant to remind you that God is a good, loving, giving God. Everything that happens in your life is about God leading you. Secondly, all I need in heaven is God. When you get to heaven, You ever wonder why it says, uh, you know, there are three great things in 1 Corinthians 13. You know, you got hope, you got faith, and you got love. And the greatest of these is what? Maybe, you know, love, right? Why isn't faith the best? I mean, without faith, we can't please God. Without faith, we can't have eternal life, right? Because when you get to heaven, you don't need faith. Do you know what? Faith is not what you need. You're in the presence of God. You don't have to believe something you don't see. And hope. You don't hope for what you have. You know, on Christmas morning, your, your son wanted that bicycle, and you got him the bicycle, and he's got the bicycle, and he's on the bicycle. He goes, I hope I get a bicycle. Son, we need to talk. Something wrong. You got it. When you get to heaven, you don't need hope. You're already there but what remains is love. That's why it's the greatest. Faith and hope are no longer operational in heaven, but when you're in heaven, you have love. That's why all I have in heaven is God. That's my future. And then the final thing, the nearness of God is my good and my strength. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion Forever. So, your choice. You can try to modify your behavior and your life will get better, but not your optimum life. You can change anger, you can change these things. So, you can modify, or you can modify your situation. or you can get to the core of the need and that is modify your faith. One Sunday after church service in 2005, 6 years after my divorce to Linda, I noticed I had on my phone a voice message. And I and I called for the voice message, and I listened to it, and it was Linda, and it was a very intense uh, phone call, and it was made during the time, it was a Sunday morning, it was made during the time I was preaching, obviously so that I wouldn't answer my phone. And when she said goodbye, it sounded very final. And it scared me. So I called our oldest daughter and I called our other daughter. I called Linda and I called her boyfriend and nobody knew where she was. I just had this check and I thought, I need to call the police. I called the police and I said, I think my wife has harmed herself and I would like you to, Go to the house you have my permission to break in they broke into the house and there she was lying there she had taken a bottle of pills and she they rushed her to the hospital pumped her stomach and she survived i followed the ambulance to the hospital and After they were finished treating her, I went to her hospital bed where she was and talked to her and I said, I told her I loved her. And I said, you don't have to do this. Our whole marriage, I used to call home and make sure she was alive because of the threats of doing what she had just tried to do. And I said, you don't have to do this. And she said, looked me straight in the eye, and she said, I'm going to do this. I want my life over. She was under a psychiatric hold for several days. That following Thursday was Thanksgiving and she was released that Thanksgiving morning. She went to Thanksgiving meal with her mother and her aunt. and I talked to her every day in the hospital and I talked to her that day she was committed to this you see no matter what you try to do to reach somebody if their belief system is so deeply flawed that they are not going to make a change in what they believe they're committed and their emotions reinforce their faulty belief and their behavior will follow. That following Sunday, I received a call from her boyfriend and she has successfully committed suicide. Because she believed at 50 plus Plus years old life is best and life is real and life is meaningful when you're young and beautiful say what a tragedy that somebody that age shouldn't think differently but see I see this differently I look back at a little 13 year old little girl You believed a lie. That what your body looks like matters. That your age matters. You know what matters? That you understand how deeply God loves you. And no matter what you're going through, God is there for you. I love this Psalm, Psalm 34, 18 says this, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. See, the problem is not lack of effort and the problem is not lack of self-discipline. It's not your inability to discipline your behavior. The problem is not your lack of connection with other people. The problem is the lack of connection to God. God, you are everything. You lead me through this life. You are present with me. You are not alone. If you're broken If you're lonely, if you feel like you can't go on, remember God rescues the crushed. If life is crushing in on you, understand the power and presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Emotional risk Stops when you understand the power of God's presence in your life. Two Latin words, Corum Deo. Corum Deo means in the presence of God. You see, you see God as so far away. And if you would just turn around, you would see God with his arms open saying, come here. When I come home, oftentimes my wife stands up and it's open my coat like that she puts her arms around me and I put my coat around her and I just hold her and she holds me that's a powerful thing God wants to do that to you wrap his arms around you Corum Deo in the presence of God would you just bow your head for a moment with your head bowed, the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth and died on the cross, shed his blood that you might have life through him. If you simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that he died for you and that he was raised from the dead to secure eternal life. You have the foundation for a transformed life. For those of you who know Jesus in this room, I just wanna encourage you to recognize in all of your getting, in all of your chasing, the best thing is to be in the presence of God. McCoram Dale.